0: Well, this is a very great joy for me to welcome tonight Professor Boshuy from the University of Maryland. But when I first knew Professor Boshuy, the story was a very different one. He is, in the first place, a very distinguished Yates scholar who has written the authoritative book on one of the his knowledge of the Arabian Literature, mythology, writing about Arabia. And it was many years teaching English at the American University of Beirut. Now, during that time, of course, the troubles in, in that beautiful country of Lebanon uh, became increasingly desperate, and I have unforgettable memories of being invited by Professor Bushway to, uh, I think it was a centenary conference oh, right. of, of uh, the, birth, the birth of Cali Gibran, author of the Prophet, which many of you I'm sure have read, and on which Professor Bushway has written a book, which I hope will be on Sunday next week. Well, uh, it, it was in the midst of the trouble, so they seemed to be allowed, so it was arranged, and I said I would go come on And on the day I arrived, the um, war broke out again, the conference was Cancelled. I arrived at the airport. It was all like a scene in a play. It's very small. Right there, you could see the bruises up there, shelling the airport. You could see um, Israeli outposts around the corners. Young men in tin helmets on the street, no which side they were on. heaps of rubble where the poor Palestinians had been, it had been. cleared out, and there was Professor Bushway with a beautiful exhibition of Kami-Liki Brown's works and pages, all how ready to open but no conference. So then the problem began, how oh, are you going to get me out to That was quite hair-raising too. But I am so glad that I saw it, because it explained a great deal to me about you, dear friend, And that talking about how to retrieve our spiritual heritage how to be a professor, of Baha'i professor of Peace Studies at Maryland University, really means putting your life on the line and that is something we really, unfortunately don't know very much about but having seen it I realized what the word peace means for you and also for the Baha'i community because there were people so slow away from one another, all regarding one another as bitterest enemies. And in the middle of that, you, you stood for peace. And I believe, was it twice your house was destroyed? You know? <laughs> three times. Three times. Three times, with all the oil books, silver, buckets of wine, anything. And we're very, very privileged to have you here. And this is the first one.
1: On uh Are we the spiritual? Yes. yes.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank distinguished guests ladies and gentlemen dear friends <coughs> it's a great honor for me be introduced by Kathleen Rain. If anyone would have asked me what would be the greatest honours you have received in your life, I would say one or two, definitely one of them, is to have been chosen by Kathleen as a friend and co-worker and tonight to be introduced by her here tonight. I would like to pay you the greatest tribute among my own people for I stand here is true as a citizen of the world as every one of us must in the final analysis represent himself but also I hope that I represent the happy face of Arabia that uh, Arabia Felix rather than the agitated, angry, and trouble-troned Arabian. So I do speak for my people, too. It's a great honor to do that. It's a great tradition, is it, that we possess. And I think next week, uh, when I lecture on the spiritual vision of classical literature, uh, some of you who will be there will no doubt uh, perhaps come to Uh, closer to this tradition. I am, of course, uh, a member of the household uh, because I am a fellow of the Temanus Academy and this is another honour that you have bestowed on me, Kathleen, which I am extremely grateful. Tonight the subject is one that I should really (laughs) propose this subject with great deal of humility uh, there was a book published in America a week ago entitled, or a month ago entitled Imposters in the Temple. It was about university professors. Mm-hmm. Yes, so <laughs> I would like to uh, introduce myself as not an imposter in the temple, but a servant at the altar. I think in the final analysis, Every one of us who teaches must be a servant at the altar if his message is going to reach anybody's heart. Behold the disturbances which for many long years have afflicted the earth and the perturbation that hath seized its peoples. It hath either been ravaged by war or tormented by sudden and unforeseen calamities. Though the world is encompassed with misery and distress, yet no man hath paused to reflect what the cause or source of that may be. Whenever the true counsellor uttered a word in admonishment, lo, they all denounced him as a mover of mischief and rejected his claim. How bewildering, how confusing is such behavior. No two men can be found who may be said to be outwardly and inwardly united. The words are the words of Baha'u'llah. Our world is filled with calamities, cares and convulsions. We are in the eye of a storm, encompassed on all sides by fearful evidences of its power and fury. The complex nature and rapid pace of dramatic changes that ceaselessly unfold before our eyes often make it difficult for us to understand the global society we inhabit. Now as never before, through developments in media, communications and information technology, We witness the crushing realities of life in other quarters of the globe and hear the anguished cries of a suffering humanity. Environmental vandalism, extremes of poverty and wealth, suffocating mechanization, population explosions, war, disease, hunger, injustice. These are the grim spectres that parade before us and which Palliated, though they may be by the anesthetizing effect of the mass media, must increasingly engulf every one of us, fellow citizens as we all are of a single shrinking neighborhood, the emerging global village, our planet Earth. The recent widespread resurgence of fundamentalism, racism and nationalism are grim reminders of just how fragile and unstable is the world of ours. Humanity is at war with itself, and on every front a world that spawns intolerance, ignorance, exploitation, fanaticism, terrorism, corruption – this is a world poised for self-destruction. The prevailing world order is lamentably defective and is incapable of exorcising the spectres of war, hunger and disease. Throughout the course of this century Human life has been revolutionized by changes on a vast and unprecedented scale. The extent of our technological attainments is stunning. We can on the one hand explore into the far reaches of space, and on the other hand delve into the innermost heart of the atom. For the first time in human history, we are able to view our planet from limitless space, who is not moved when he sees the breathtaking photographs of this ineffably beautiful and fragile habitation of ours as it appears from outer space. To Edgar Mitchell, an Apollo 14 astronaut, the view of our planet was a glimpse of the divine. Science shows us that our planet is sustained by an intricate and mysterious web of interdependency. There is an overreaching unity, and within its compass, all things are connected. In the past, profoundly aware of these delicate webs of relationship, the indigenous peoples of the world lived harmoniously with their surroundings. The impact of the European civilization in its voracious, savage, and contemptuous disregard for these ancient cultures has, however, had a devastating effect. In 1855, after the American government had violated a treaty promising his people land, Chief Seattle of the Squamish tribe addresses these words to the then President of the United States. All things are connected like the blood which unites one family. Whatever befalls the earth, befalls the sons of the earth. Man did not weave the web of life, He's merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. Our collective survival is at stake. Threats to the environment are becoming global in scope and devastating in scale. Gro Harlem, Brontland, whose work and vision inspired last year's Rio summit on the environment maintains that the time and the opportunity has come to break out of the negative trends of the past. Never before in our history have we had similar capacities, but we need a new vision, a new courage, we need a new global ethic. We face the white hot hour of trial. The path to the future still lies open before us. Never before has there been such an age. It is an age of breakdown or breakthrough, but to break through into a future of promise, possibilities and peace, the human family must strive to transform itself. The tensions now prevailing in society are analogous to those experienced by its individual members in passing from youth to adulthood. The human race, as a distinct organic unit, has passed through the stages of infancy and childhood and is now in the culminating period of its turbulent adolescence, approaching its long-awaited coming of age. Pierre Dillard de Chardin, priest and scientist, invites us to contemplate this growth. He writes, but let us look with open minds at the new world being born around us amid the convulsions of war if we have any power to diagnose we are bound to recognize that the so-called ills which so afflict us are above all growing pains what looks like no more than a hunger for material well-being is in reality a hunger for higher being it is the spirit of mankind suddenly alive with a sense of all that remains to be done if it is to achieve the fulfillment of its powers and possibilities. We have behind us three three and a half million years of evolution and hundreds of thousands of years of collective living in various social structures. The pulse of life beats powerfully within us, And the blood that courses through our arteries is rich with the accumulated experience of the ages. We have witnessed a prodigious increase in our numbers, our skills, and our potentialities. With every passing second, new human beings are coming into our world, connected in a single web of of destiny. But as Martin Luther King warned us in his inspiring Christmas Sermon on Peace of 1967, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. There is such a thing as being too late. Over the bleached bones of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. Every minute lost, every decision delayed, means more death, more malnutrition and disease, more irreversible damage to our planet. Nobody will ever truly know the cost of the wasted time, the forfeited opportunities, the mismanaged or misspent resources. Our present institutions are crisis-oriented, designed only to deal with problems as they arise. In the regular pattern of rise, culmination, decline and disintegration, which is characteristic of cultural evolution, The decline occurs when a culture has become too fixed and rigid in its ideas to meet challenges of changing conditions. It is essential then that the many creative voices that speak for change and transformation in our world be listened to. In the peace and transformation project undertaken by the United Nations University, three basic principles emerge regarding world development and our collective survival. In the words of Huitor Guarguilo de Souza, Rector of the United Nations University, the first principle is as follows. Development should be ecologically healthy, otherwise it will not be leading to collective survival. Secondly, peace and development can materialize only simultaneously. Thirdly, Collective survival is possible only when we recognize all the other cultures. This calls for a pluralistic universalism in which we can agree to develop and also to permit others to develop each according to his or her values and capacity to dialogue. In this way, collective survival has as its prerequisite cultural identity and cultural pluralism unity in diversity diversity in unity the scientific and technological advances occurring this century portend a great search forward in the social evolution of our planet and indicate the means by which many of the problems of development facing us could be resolved they provide indeed the very means for the administration of the complex life of an interdependent world. It is becoming more widely accepted that technology has a decisive role to play in world development. Nevertheless, since technological development is largely fueled by commercial considerations, it has come to play a critical role in the bringing into existence of a new consumer of new consumer products, and hence in creating new demands and in exacerbating the extravagance and prodigality of modern life. The luxuries of yesterday become the necessities of today. Inbuilt obsolescence speeds up the turnover of goods and garbage cans in the Western industrialized world overflow. In its recent report, the first global revolution, title of the book is The First Global Revolution, the Club of Rome addresses this key issue. The imperative need now is to attempt to master and stimulate technology within a human framework, so as to contribute to the general and sustainable well-being of all peoples in this and succeeding generations within a holistic, global, and even cosmic comprehension, and to balance material advances by cultivating social, moral and spiritual attributes. The flagrant excesses of our technologically oriented culture have upset our emotional, intellectual and spiritual equilibrium. Technological gadgetry, which has surreptitiously stolen into and taken possession of our lives all too often deadens our appreciation of the awe-inspiring and mysterious world around us. The evolution from the integrated communal life of ancient Greece to the fragmented isolation of an industrialized world has been, however, a necessary phase in our evolution and part of a dialectical process leading to a more advanced and integrated social order. But as yet humanity has not attained to wholeness, harmony and integration. As a Mexican novelist, Carlos Fuentes warns us, our great addiction to materialism will not solve our problems. And when in, in 1986, he and 21 leading thinkers in science, government, and the humanities were asked as to what they perceived to be the major issues facing us. They listed the following six vital issues that demand the full attention of humanity, issues that are truly global and touches touch us all. First, the threat of nuclear annihilation. The danger is still with us. It has not vanished with the demise of the Soviet Empire. The danger of overpopulation, the degradation of the global environment, the gap between the developing and the industrial worlds, between the rich and the poor, the need for fundamental restructuring of educational systems, and finally, the breakdown in public and private morality. The document in which these thinkers set forth their views concludes by stating that agendas, plans, and policies are not by themselves capable of bringing about true and lasting peace. But even these policies are of uncertain value, they write, without the qualities of thought, the habits of the heart to use a phrase that sociologist Robert Bellah borrowed from Alexis de Tocqueville in his last great work the management of protracted social conflict my late friend Edward Azar stressed the need for people involved in problem solving forums to be keenly aware of the ethical responsibilities associated with the process shortly before his death Professor Azar confided in me that his last book was in a sense only half written we discussed the need for a book which dealt with the spiritual and cultural elements involved in conflict management elements which we felt constituted a vitally important aspect of the whole issue also critical I believe is that any agreement between contending parties should contain as well as obvious economic, political, and territorial concessions, a distinct educational element. This is what I was uh, saying at a seminar in Washington when they had the Arab-Israeli peace negotiations. I said, you can talk about setting the territory, the economics, all that, And it will be meaningless and futile if you do not have concomitantly with this process of peace developing an educational program in which you reach the schools, the people in the street, and begin to remove the prejudice and the hatred in the heart. Or else, in a hundred years' time, you have another Yugoslavia was a peace treaty remember that put Yugoslavia in order as a nation but the things of the heart were never addressed some people when you speak about the heart they say you are up there well we are down here in Yugoslavia that was a result of very clever people who sat down and worked out a peace program and nation building i think uh, it was schiller on the aesthetic education of man who really pointed this matter so strongly i quote him it is not then enough to say that all enlightenment of the understanding is worthy of respect only in as much as it reacts upon character to a certain extent it also proceeds from character since the way to the head must be opened through the heart. The development of man's capacity for feeling is, therefore, the most urgent need of our age. Not merely because it can be a means of making better insights effective for living, but precisely because it provides the impulse for bettering our insights. We inhabit a world that is running, skirt from its spiritual roots, in which we seek to hide our emptiness behind the bleak walls of materialism. Yet we can never escape from what is so inextricably a part of our nature. However deeply buried, however sorely burdened, however grievously neglected, the human spirit can never be entirely stifled, eclipsed, or overwhelmed if ever we are to advance towards a harmonious and integrated global society and a world where peace prevails it's our soul that must be awakened two thousand eight hundred years ago the great Upanishads those reflective and mystical scriptures that lie at the very heart of Hindu religion and philosophy taught that the soul is to be found within the heart the soul of mine within the heart within the heart is greater than the earth greater than the atmosphere greater than the sky greater than these words continuing this sacred threat of divine guidance so poetically expressed in the hindu scriptures baha'u'llah asserts for this time and age what all previous divine messengers have expressed he hath chosen out of the whole world the hearts of his servants and made them each a seat for the revelation of his glory. In artistic terms, whether it is the creator of poetry, music or the fine arts, the heart is also the generator of creativity and the seat of the imagination. The task of reawakening the numbed capacity for feeling spoken by Schiller seems to be the responsibility of people of vision, prophets, poets, and seers. Fully aware of this responsibility, William Blake, it's almost impertinent to speak of Blake in your presence, uh, Kathleen, but allow me this. William Blake never desisted from his quest to arouse the spirit of truth the God in all men he therefore announces in his great poem Jerusalem I rest not from my great task to open the eternal worlds to open the immortal eyes of man into the worlds of thought into eternity ever expanding in the bosom of God the human imagination great literature and poetry, have the power to communicate at the very deepest levels of the human psyche. They delve below the surface, realities of daily life, to illuminate an inner reality where thought, emotion, and belief come to life in the imagination. In his essay entitled Theophile Gautier, Baudelaire portrays a particularly vivid picture of how the poet calls upon the mystical power of language to lift the soul. He writes, by means of poetry, the soul glimpses the splendors situated beyond the tomb. And when an exquisite poem brings tears to the eyes, these tears are not the proof of an excess of enjoyment, but they are much rather the witness of an irritated melancholy, of a postulation of the nerves of a nature exiled in the imperfect and which would like to take immediate possession on this earth of ours of the paradise revealed. Thus the principle of poetry is strictly and simply the human aspiration towards a superior beauty. And the manifestation of this principle is an enthusiasm, a rapture of the soul, an enthusiasm quite independent of passion, which is the intoxication of the heart and of truth, which is the nourishment of reason. With the enhanced sensibility and awareness which all good poetry naturally evokes in us, our physical senses are imaginatively heightened by the ethereal magic of the poet's words. Great poetry has the ability to engage us simultaneously on the most intimate and personal and the most broadly objective levels, suggesting to us that our personal experience, so ably captured by the poet, is common to all humanity. It has the power to inspire us, to console us, to interpret our very existence for us. Hence Blake's plea in the voice of the ancient bard, Hear the voice of the bard who present past and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees, calling the lapsed soul and weeping in the evening dew. Blake's verse is a most potent articulation of the deeply spiritual mission of the poet. His aim was to awaken the lapsed soul of mankind and thence to found a new world order based on truth and brotherhood. Scorned as a madman during his lifetime, it's only recently that the world has become aware of the prophetic wisdom of his poetry. And thanks to Kathleen Raine, who has made a great contribution towards this understanding. For inspired poetry, like religion, is a vehicle of truth affording the human soul some intimation of the realm of absolute reality. You may ask, who then is this lapsed soul of whom Blake speaks? The psalmist asked the same question 2,300 years ago. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the Son of Man, that thou visitest him, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. In a world where reality is rationed, segmented, and compartmentalized, there is no unity, no glory, and little honor. In such a world, man feels himself distracted, alienated, uprooted, and abandoned. In such a world, it is the laws of the jungle that prevail. The rampant ego reigns triumphant, and all else is subservient to its imperious demands. The Club of Rome reports, a report, which I referred to earlier, emphasizes that unity can only be restored by a return to the collective spiritual and ethical heritage of the human race, a heritage to which we are all heirs and which we can all claim as our common birthright. The global society, they write, the global society we are heading towards cannot emerge unless it drinks from the source of moral and spiritual values which stake out its dynamics. At my inaugural speech in University of Maryland, when I was inaugurated to be the first incumbent of the Baha'i Chair for World Peace, I think I spoke the following words. I said, because I am a human being here and now, I am a Jew and I am a Buddhist and I am a Hindu And I am a Muslim, and I am a Christian, and I am as a Wastrian, and I am a Baha'i, and many other things beside. Because whether we like it or not, we as human beings are heirs to everything that has existed, breathed, manifested itself, or inspired our race. In the Universal House of Justice's challenging and comprehensive statement on the subject of world peace, the importance of man's spiritual endowments is highlighted and emphasized. The endowments which distinguish the human race from all other forms of life are summed up in what is known as the human spirit. The mind is its essential quality. These endowments have enabled humanity to build civilization and to prosper materially. But such accomplishments alone have never satisfied the human spirit whose mysterious nature inclines it towards transcendence, reaching towards an invisible realm, towards the ultimate reality, that unknowable essence of essences called God. The religions brought to mankind by a succession of spiritual luminaries have been the primary link between humanity and that ultimate reality and have galvanized and refined mankind's capacity to achieve spiritual success together with social progress. Arnold Toynbee, the towering figure among modern historians, wrote in his book Change and Habit that we are moving into an age in which the religious dimension of the human experience cannot be ignored. It cannot be ignored for another reason that is responsible for a lot of unhappiness, trouble, agony. Anyway, you cannot dismiss religion. To misunderstand it means death, to understand it means life. So it's part. And we, we in America, we have an intense fear of uh, religion, and especially in the universities and only now we're beginning to open the doors to really come to understand what's happening I mean really let's, let's look at this this is very interesting what's happening in the world today the quest for ultimate spiritual reality is inborn in human nature in the past some human beings that's toying me in the past some human beings have eagerly embraced this common birthright of ours while others have sought to be quit of it. We are now moving into an age in which it will be more difficult to ignore the truth. In this coming age of mechanization, atomic power, affluence, and leisure, religion will surely come into its own as the one boundless field for freedom and for creativity that is open for the unlimited aspirations of human nature. This is a hard saying for modern Western man. For Albert Einstein, the most beautiful thing that we can experience is the mysterious in his address at the hebrew university of jerusalem in 1950 he declares it is the source of all true art and science he to whom this emotion this mysterious awareness of the mysterious the awareness of the mysterious he to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pose to wander and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead, his eyes are closed. This insight into the mystery of life, coupled though it be with fear, has also given rise to religion. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom, and the most radiant beauty which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their most primitive forms. This knowledge, writes Einstein, this feeling is at the center of true religiousness. In this sense, in this sense only, I belong to the ranks of devoutly religious men. The collective survival of humanity depends upon the awakening to the truth of these observations. Unfortunately, ours is a spiritually illiterate culture that gives little credence to such nebulous or insubstantial concerns as these. Ours is a culture that gives to the humanities only a fraction of the attention it bestows on technological innovations. And yet, every human civilization since the dawn of time has been based upon a profound awareness that the basis of reality is the spirit. The cultural heritage of the whole world is a living testimony to the truth of this premise. We human beings are too ineffable in our innermost reality, too transcendent in the highest aspirations of our spirit, and too mysterious in the deepest workings of our soul, to be confined by that suffocatingly materialistic view of life, which would deny to these immaterial otherworldly and supernal elements in our nature, the legitimate and necessary cultural expression. The current materialistic orientation of society manifests itself in the striking disparity between the development of intellectual power, scientific knowledge, and technological skills on the one hand, and of wisdom, spirituality, and ethics on the other. The cultural predicament of modern man is that he is divided within himself and where there is no unity there can be no peace. This dividedness is reflected in a series of dichotomies running throughout our societies, especially those in the West. Mind versus body, feeling versus morality, science versus the humanities, the cult of the individual versus the welfare of the community. We are a centrifugal society is seeking to connect segment of a fragmented periphery when the center cannot hold. Until that center, that core reality, that last perspective, that hidden portal opening into the eternal and immeasurable worlds of the spirit is recognized and restored to its rightful position in our lives, we will remain at war with ourselves. The recognition of this lost perspective And the reinstatement at the very heart and center of our collective being of the reality it discloses is critical to our survival. To obtain an understanding of the historical importance of this core reality, of how it may be discovered in this modern age, And of how in future it may be allowed to inform and permeate developments in all branches of knowledge must rank among the most pressing tasks and noble undertakings that face the intellectual academic and educational community of today. Nowhere is our fragmented view of reality with all the suffering it entails more evident than in our educational institutions. Caught up In the male storm of scientific and technological developments, our educational system has overlooked what the German philosopher Leibniz calls the perennial wisdom, the unifying center which alone can hold in check and encounter the forces of disintegration. Perennial wisdom is the tradition to which no historical beginning or human originator can be ascribed. Plato held the such knowledge is innate and is to be educed by education in a process he called re-memory, that is making whole again. It is this perennial wisdom that has traditionally formed the basis of education, providing as it does a conception of the sublime underlying unity and order within everything that exists. Our present educational system, by contrast, dismembers, particularizes, and compartmentalizes, with the result that people are prevented from acquiring a truly holistic conception of reality. Failing to remember, it forgets. The humanities and their distilled essence, which constitutes our cultural and spiritual heritage, educate our sensibilities in discovering unity, order, and meaning in life. Implicit in the word university is the meaning to bring together. Education should be a lifelong process of discovery, its pursuit developing an attitude, a cast of mind, and an ability to judge in intellectual and moral spheres. Plato epitomized the abiding human values as the good, the true, and the beautiful, conceiving them as aspects of the one which embraces, reconciles, and harmonizes all branches of human knowledge, the natural sciences included. These principles are fundamental, absolute, and universal in application. Man conquers, structures, rationalizes, and orders his material environment by giving his spiritual faculties full reign in the world of the senses. Man is the artist who through the instrumentality of his soul, his mind and his sensations creates the world in which he lives. If only our educational systems work to refine and balance these three instruments then gradually we would bring into being a world susceptible of endless perfections, for man carries within his heart the seed of the divine. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great contemporary Russian writer, in the Templeton Address of 1983, unhesitatingly attributes our enormous problems to a universal loss of religious faith and spiritual vision. He writes, All attempts to find a way out of the plight of today's world are fruitless without a repentant return of our consciousness to the creator of all. In the life of our entire planet, the divine spirit moves. This we must grasp in our dark and terrible hour. On a visit to Paris in 1913, a distinguished American educator, Stanwyck Cobb, had the privilege of meeting Abdul Baha, son of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, and head of the Baha'i community after his father's passing. When Stanwood Cobb spoke about his work, Abdul Baha asked him, do you teach matters of the spirit in your universities? No, 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 there is no time for that, replied Cobb. But sixty years later, in his book Thoughts on Education and Life, Cobb brewed these words by which he had unwittingly repudiated the spiritual basis of modern education. The teaching is for greater happiness. Educating the spirit can provide the guiding force and necessary direction. If educators would only turn their attention, their minds and their hearts to this higher plane of existence, the cosmic knowledge thus unleashed Would transform our learning and hence the world. Only when such a spiritual dimension is introduced into our institutions can education begin to fulfill its true and noble role which is the refinement and perfection of human nature. Where more attention to be paid by scientists and educationalists to the study of the cosmic laws that govern both the physical and moral worlds, the laws for instance of love, of order, of the need for movement, regularity, and discipline. And were these to be communicated to our children and inculcated in them from an early age, then undoubtedly the course of history would be changed. Spiritual traditions have in the past exerted a potent influence on education. Implicit in the teaching of the founders of all the great faiths of humankind is the idea Of the sacredness of each person as an immortal soul whose destiny is pregnant with meaning and whose perfect development is an obligation upon the social group throughout the world in the name of these faiths education has become imbued with democratic ideals the purpose of any great world faith is defeated when attachment to form supersedes the spirit This is how prejudice and fundamentalism develop. It is essential that in all our institutions we adopt an interdisciplinary approach that extends right across the curriculum. Knowledge and wisdom, information and intuition, science and religion, The ideas of the mind and the melodies of the heart must meet and touch, mingle, merge and take us towards what T.S. Eliot called the high dream of man. Our sciences must not remain totally fragmented, the sole preserve of our philosophers and thinkers and the exclusive property of academics and specialists, the gulf between the elite and popular mentalities between the traditional and the modern is enormous and must be bridged by visionary educational initiatives. The consequences of failing to teach the sciences of the spirit are catastrophic, as the psychiatrist R.D. Lange, very distinguished British uh, psychiatrist, points out in this observation... I will give you the reference, lest you should think I made it up. It's uh, laying uh, in his book, The Politics of Experience, published in New York, Valentine, 1978, page 104. This is what he says. A child born today in the United Kingdom stands at ten times greater chance of being admitted to a mental hospital than to a university. This can be taken as an indication that we are dividing, driving our children and driving our children mad more effectively than we are genuinely educating them. Perhaps it's our way of educating them that is driving them mad. Our youth must be saved. They must be initiated into the life of the spirit. We must touch their hearts. They must be exposed to the eternal values as taught by the great educators of mankind. The development of man's capacity for feeling is therefore the most urgent need of our age, wrote Schiller. We must cease exposing each generation to systems that fail to teach them. The sciences of the spirit which abdul Baha pleaded for. We must cease to expose our children solely to the values of the marketplace. What a horrible word. That word is responsible for a lot of damage. I've reached the end of my talk, so your patience is appreciated. <clears throat> we must cease to expose our children solely to the values of the marketplace. If indeed the marketplace is said to operate according to any system of values, let us remember that our children are a sacred trust, enthroned in flesh, a spirit from the milky way. Man is a supreme talisman. Lack of a proper education hath, however, deprived him of that which he doth inherently possess. Through a word proceeding out of the mouth of God he was called into being. By one word more he was guided to recognize the source of his education. By yet another word his station and destiny were safeguarded. The great being saith regard man as a mind rich in gems of inestimable value. Education can alone cause it to be to reveal its treasures and enable mankind to benefit therefrom. These words, uttered by Bahá'u'lláh, reverberated by Schiller, who again writes, "A pure ideal that that man carries a pure ideal within himself." The words of the German mystical theologian, Mister Eckhart. Every man carries within himself the new man, the heavenly man, the younger person, the friend, the noble man. To Shakespeare, man was an angel and a god. What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form, in moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how... I misread that. Read it again. What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty! In form, in moving, how express and admirable! In action, how like an angel! In apprehension, how like a god! The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals! Between true science and true religion, There has never been nor can there ever be any contradiction. They are merely complementary aspects of a single truth. Both have been progressively revealed to humankind according to its level of understanding and its intellectual and spiritual receptivity. Krishna, Buddha, Zoroaster, Moses, Christ, Muhammad, Baha'u'llah. These are among the divine luminaries who have arisen to provide the spiritual impetus needed to propel humankind towards ever-higher realms of achievement and understanding. Heraclitus, Pythagoras, Ptolemy, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, Darwin, Einstein, Tilla de Scherder. these are among the intellectual giants who, through their creative genius, have in like manner significantly enhanced human knowledge about genesis, evolution, history, the natural environment, and the secrets of the soul. The divine luminaries and inspired educators to whom we owe our spiritual heritage are in a sense the scientists, the technicians, the architects of our soul. The great spiritual traditions they founded have enriched human life for thousands of years. History records that from age to age, An enlightened one has spoken out, imbuing the human race with a profounder consciousness of its destiny, infusing into it a heightened awareness of the divine, and imparting to all aspects of life, art, government, education, science and architecture a new significance. But underlying the astounding diversity of traditions that has thus developed, there lies a common foundation manifested in their cosmological, eschatological and theological teachings teachings about our origins our destinies and the nature of the divine uh, receptivity respectively the forms are many but the essence is one this is the underlying unity which is beautifully expressed in the writings of the muslim sufi poet and philosopher ibn al-arabi the arabic original goes as follows لقد صار قلبي قابلا كل صورة فمرعا لغزلان ودير لرهباني وبيت لأوثان وكهفه طائف والواح تورات ومصحف قراني ادين بدين الحب ان اتوجهت ركابه فالحب ديني my heart is capable of every form a cloister for the monk a fane for idols the pasture for gazelles, the pilgrims of the Kaaba, the, tab- the tables of the Tawrah, the verses of the Quran. Love is the faith I hold. Wherever it beckons me, I follow. As an example of the common foundation underlying the ethical systems of different faith, witness the teaching that we should treat others as we ourselves would wish to be treated, otherwise known as the Golden Rule, and found in different formulations in the Hindu Mahabharata, in the Buddhist Yudana Varga, in the Jewish Talmud, in the Zoroastrian Datis and Didinki, in the Christian Gospel of St. Matthew, the Islamic Hadith, and the Baha'i Gleanings, as well as summing up the moral attitude. The peace inducing aspect extending through these great traditions, irrespective of the place and time of arising. It also signifies an aspect of unity, which is their central virtue, a virtue that the world, in its disjointed view of history, has failed to appreciate. The holistic approach, finally may be encapsulated in the simplified concepts of the relativity of religious truth and progressive revelation. But the necessary foundation of these statements and indeed the establishment of religious peace is dependent upon the acceptance of the essential unity of the founders of all religions. Each is the fulfillment of the one who has preceded him and the herald of the one who is to succeed him. Through these messengers appearing in different historical periods and in different regions of the earth, the one true creator has communicated his will and purpose to mankind, granting successively greater outpourings of religious truth and affording an ever fuller apprehension of the divine. But at root and in its inmost essence The message thus conveyed is one, only by establishing universal system of values, embodying this understanding of the underlying truth and unity of all religions, can we hope to establish genuine and lasting peace.
0: All that we would wish to have us to do to describe the program that lies before us, whether we can contribute our drop to its fulfillment is another matter. But uh, before we close, I'm sure you'll be
2: May I just make uh, one thing? Because I think, you know, when you reach my age, and you are just between this world and the next only a matter of you come to the realization that, especially as a university professor, I have have come to regret the, the past very much when I was arrogant and most probably thought I knew it all. And it's such a humbling experience to realize when I was, <coughs> I, I want to share this with you because this is also part of this holistic approach. I was on my deathbed in uh, in Washington two years ago, it was serious. And you know, when you are standing just, you know, either in or out, your life begins to pass through like a newsreel, everything. But certain things remain and strike you as being the most important. And you know, throughout my life really, the only important thing was the face of an old woman. I couldn't remember who she was. Smiling, beautiful face. And then after I came out of the operation, and it was destined that I should continue to live and enjoy Kathleen's love and friendship and yours. I remember that this old woman I had done one act of self-sacrifice by saving her son at some very difficult moments in Beirut. As though the Almighty was communicating to me a message. It is when one forgets oneself that one is able to really be acceptable in the sight of God. And therefore, you see, when answering questions, what do I answer? I do not answer questions. I share an understanding with you. I really would like even to change the language in which we speak, you see. It is so arrogant of me to answer any question. Who am I? I could have 600 PhDs, so what? You see? There are people who have no knowledge of worldly things who in the Spirit can teach us and save us. I therefore will share whatever I can share with you. Fine.
1: Yes? I I agree with you very much with the general feeling of what you said. I'm a Quaker and uh, I, until recently, have been editor of The Universalist, which is a Quaker journal, um, which is generally following what what you're saying. I think the thing that strikes me all the time, though, is, is about people's experience. When we talk about children, children looking out at this world now are exposed in the West, so children in the West as well as in, in other countries, to the horrors really of everything, of pain of the world every day and all the time, on the news, in the television mm-hmm. programs, in the newspapers, and so on. And it seems to well, I think it's fairly obvious that the more, the nearer the, the spirit one is, the nearer the nearer beauty on it, the nearer pain you are. And, and awareness of pain. You have to be, I mean, they go together. And I don't know what you feel about the way children um, cope with the awful knowledge that they've all got, and how we all cope with knowledge that we've all got. What is currently happening in the world at the very minute we speak in all the minutes of our lives. And it's that kind of problem, I mean, the defences that people have to regret not to know what is happening to people all the time um, in many countries. And I mean, in this country. I mean, you've only got to go out into the streets of London to see the language people. I just wonder... Because it seems to me, it's very, you know, it's why you say we must be nearer the spirit. But to be nearer the spirit, we have to be able to bear the pain and
2: the reality that we constantly see. Uh, It's not only to be nearer the spirit. Uh, What I emphasized in what I was saying was that we should teach. The virtues of the spirit. This is different. You know, there is an educational process here and an educational uh, system that must come into operation. Where we take care, of course, life uh, both has its ugliness and its uh, beauty; it has its sadness and its joy. But uh, when you inflict suffering, is one thing when it is part of a natural process, something else. Now, how we can remove the suffering of the world which is inflicted by man on man is one thing. How we face the pain and agony which is part of natural existence is another. But even by educating the spirit, our coping with pain and suffering becomes enormously more, what shall I say, acceptable. But we
1: know so much about it now. I mean, for most, for most human beings who have ever lived, they have know just what's around them, and we know what's happening right Perhaps
2: uh, this will uh, <laughs> induce us to find solutions quickly. You see, the, the, hopefully, well, um, I, I'm a pessimist, I believe, uh, I an optimist, I believe that it is inevitable that we will <coughs> arrive at a day when we can remove a lot of the suffering in the world and bring about peace among the peoples of the world, or else I wouldn't be standing here, nor would I be working with, with cash. Uh, one student in one of my classes, one of my sinner, said, well, if you are so sure, why, why don't you leave it happen? What's the... A- I said, yes, we only want to reduce the casualties, that's all, that's all. It will come. There's no way that it can come. But uh, of course, uh, pain and suffering is part of, uh, of, of life, but there is a difference between pain and suffering which is inflicted, and pain and suffering which is part of our life, you see. We fall sick, we so fall ill, we may break an arm, we may go blind, difficulty with the eyes, uh, these are part and, and this here if you have the spirit you can accept it See? when uh, again uh, to, to, to tell you not that I am of any special spiritual fortitude or anything of the sort I'm just a, a humble camel driver that happened to lose his way and is here with you so <laughs> the, point, the point I am trying to make is that when, when I felt that it was time you know I mean I, the, here it was I, I was there it's the end So I looked up and I said to him, I said, listen, don't do me a favor. My life is yours. It has always been my life. You want to take it? Please do. You want to keep it? It's up to you. But don't do me a favor. I accept it without question. From my tradition, this marvelous sentence is a... Is really so profound, so deep. It goes like this: Alhamdulillah, ala makruhin siwa. Let us thank our God, who is the only being that thanks must be rendered to, whenever we are suffering. That 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 kind of suffering is something else. For 17, 18 years, I was in Lebanon. Catherine said, I, I lost my home three times. Yes, I became a refugee three times, really. And to be a refugee once is really bad, twice is tragic, three times it's careless. <laughs> you know? I mean it's really devastating. But
1: what do you do? How do you cope
2: with a situation like this? My wife and I could have... Well, I don't know what could have happened. We're happier today with nothing. Than when we had everything. I have a less, I don't own a house. I don't own anything. What do I worry about? Nothing. Anybody <laughs> else? Yes. Yes. yes what is interesting,
1: you talk about the study of world religions, the unity of the Godhead. And, um
2: London University run ex courses on uh, world religions which are marvellous the, the more the more yes. the merrier yeah. I've just finished writing a book entitled I didn't call it world religions I called it the spiritual heritage of the human race oh. and really in fact these spiritual you know these Chinese for some reason don't like the word prophet and they don't talk about God very much but they understand the meaning of a spiritual teacher. You see, All right, I talk to them in their language, why should I impose on them what I know? Yes, spiritual teacher is one who brings about ethics, values, we live together happily, we help one another. Oh yes, we understand that. In that book, I give you an example of how I tried desperately to write a book which was different from... Any other book, and this is almost uh, a great claim. I don't know whether it is or not, but I try to do one thing: to be consistent in the way I deal with every religion, even my own. So I noticed that the reference is made to Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism and Zoroastrianism and its Christianity and Islam. Well, I thought must be something wrong here. If Judaism is an ism, then it is not of God. It is man made, like communism. So I didn't use the term Judaism at all. I used the term the Jewish faith. In Islam, it is the same system. I'll tell you how. Islam is masculine gender, everything else is feminine gender. You see? Al-Masihiyya, al-Buziyya, al-Yahudiyya, feminine, Islam, huwa. So in Arabic when I write, I never refer to any origin except al-Dinu al it becomes masculine. You see? So these are things that we have to be very careful about. And then of course, if a, a tradition believes in a certain thing, why do I compare it with something else? How can you compare pears and apples? You eat apples, you enjoy it. You eat pears, you enjoy it. One day pears is useful, the other day apples is more useful. So what? This, to be able to accept the unlike, you see, is really what we are after. Anyhow, uh, I am very happy. We are uh, we are at the University of Maryland, and this is part of the. There are a number of people uh, in the university who... (coughs) I must share this with you, really. The University of Maryland, it's it's an amazing thing that has happened. It's the only university in the United States where its president and its deans speak about spirituality. They actually do. Which is fantastic. And so we are aiming at creating an institute of world Religion. Which goes along the same lines that I am explaining. We are a group of us who are thinking along these lines, and so hopefully that the comparative religion as such is no longer valid. It is the presentation of religious traditions as equal and serving, you know, the great river of the human race. Yeah. You know, uh, I was once asked by a student of mine in one of the... I teach a course of word religions at University of Maryland. These are our honor students and they're very bright. Yes, He said, you talk to me. All right, with this unity of God, this, tell me what, 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 what it is. What, 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 what do you mean by that? I said, this is not something that is mine. But it is the result of being exposed to all these great traditions. God is like sunshine. The sun emerges, brings warmth and light to the ugly and the beautiful alike. It warms the worms and the peacock. It brings life. And if you even have a dark room, bore a hole in the ceiling as wide as a needle's eye and the sun (coughs) will try to find its way to reach you through that small hole and it will and it's only when we shut it out that it does not come through this is how God is really and you cannot really love unless you extend this love from a greater love this is the difference between love and lust. They say, why married life is such? Of course. Because, you know. I don't know whether I'll be talking about Khalil Gibran, it is in this marvelous book of his, Jesus the Son of Man, when Jesus meets Mary of Magdalene. And then he tells her these words. He says, other men loved you for themselves, but I alone love you for yourself. That is the difference between lust and love. That's why if you love, it will last. And if you lust, it does not last in any case. So, you know, we have to expand this heart. Bring it to, take in the whole of the human race. Everybody. It is possible. I should have been a terrorist, really. <laughs> Honestly. Through education, spiritual education, you can arrive at an and understand me. It's like uh, filling this immigration form in the United States. I was passing through Canada to the United States. You know, I'm the wrong shape, wrong everything, as you can see. And then they had this handed this form to me, and it had on it race. So I wrote my name, everything, and then I race. I put human. <laughs> the immigration officer came round. He said, "What have you done?
1: I said, what have I done?"
2: He said, "What have you written?" I said, "Human." He said, "You are not human." I said, all right, whatever you say, you know, if you have lived in Lebanon as I have, you will never argue with a man in uniform or with a gun. <laughs> so, all right, he said, where were you born? I said, Nazareth, Palestine, it used to be. Now it's Israel. It doesn't really matter to me what it is. Really, I am happy as I am. <laughs> he said, you are Arab? I said, if you say so. <laughs> he said, Bedouin? I said, if you say so. He said, Bedwine, genuine? I said, if you say so. He said, the right then, genuine Bedwine air. <laughs> I was never insulted in my life as on that occasion. My birth is an accident. I have no choice. My humanity is God-given. It's mine. Nobody can take it away from me. So, um, I think these marvelous people have been so good. Let's release them. Thank Thank you.
0: I remember it. In Lebanon. I remember the University of Maryland. There it is. This is what I wanted to bring to my terminal circle. I wanted to. I wanted them to know, what to have to say, and to experience it. Because it seems to me that uh, you were speaking of the world that we must we must reach, and uh, you you are already there and have brought it to us. So bless you thank
1: you